Hello. Hello. We on? Okay, we're on. So a few caveats. First of all, Microsoft is an enormous company, and as all big companies, all of you who are from them know, any one company is really like a hundred or more loosely federated companies that sort of work together and sort of don't. So I work for one particular division, which has a lot of people, and we are making the culture shift to lean. We are not there yet. We will not be there anytime soon, but we're getting there. And I'm going to talk a little bit about things that we have done that have worked and have not worked. During this talk, feel free to ask questions as they occur to you. Uh, you don't need to save them for the end. This will be a better talk if you all ask questions and I can address your particular concerns. So I have been at Microsoft for a little while. I came in via a startup acquisition, which means that at first I kind of had the interesting role of being uh, from a very fast-moving, innovative pace, kind of looking around going, hmm, this is, this is kind of weird. Uh, so the division I'm talking about, cloud and enterprise, they have Azure, Visual Studio, developer tools, et cetera. I've been watching them from the outside first as I sort of helped do some lectures and coaching, and now I've moved into that division. So it's been kind of an interesting view of seeing from the inside and the outside of what this kind of motion looks like. So what do we do? How do we change a culture? You know, Division's got over 8,000 full-time employees. They are all over the place. They are working on all kinds of different things in country offices with vastly different cultures. So what do we actually do if we want to evoke a culture shift? And I think we may be slightly different than some places in that we are not adopting lean for the sake of lean so much as, oh, hey, we stopped listening to our customers for about 10, 15 years, and look where that got us. We need to start doing that again. So it's a movement towards getting out of the building, doing customer development, and ideally we would like to learn faster than not fast uh, because we have a long history of three-year development cycles shipping boxed software products. So how do we actually do this? Well, you can probably guess that there's some things that don't work particularly well, which is, say, a top-down mandate of starting tomorrow, everything is, everyone's going to do this. It also doesn't work to have sort of organic bottom-up adoption. And I saw that from working at Microsoft kind of from the outside, where I'd show up in random offices and kind of be like, hey, does anyone want to talk about lean stuff? And, uh, and, and I, I found people, of course, but in a company that size, it doesn't matter if you have 20 or 30 or even 100 really loud voices saying we should do this thing. If they're scattered, then nothing ever really takes off. So that doesn't work either. We can't kind of do a consistent rollout. And this is what most big organizations want to do. They say, we invest in something. Well, ev starting tomorrow, every single person will do this exact same thing. And that doesn't work either. And we can't just, you know, everyone wakes up tomorrow and they've forgotten all of their old habits. So things that I have seen working are to set cultural expectations versus result expectations. So if you tell someone and, uh, you know, Thank goodness for giving me the best example ever. Uh, say, Wells Fargo, you're going to open this many bank accounts. You will get terrible behavior that leads to those results. So if you say things like, I need you to go out and talk to 100 customers or you know, write 1,000 lines of code or, or whatever the thing is, people will fulfill that mandate in really terrible ways. But if you set expectations like, we are striving to be a team who challenges our assumptions. It is not okay to not get feedback from outside this building. 
then you have a, a better sense of freedom where people are actually doing things that have a chance at, at, at being the right thing. And we still see a lot of bad behaviors, but we're working on those. You have to experiment. And you have to try different paths. And the tricky thing here is it can look like you're just kind of throwing a whole lot of spaghetti up at the wall to see what sticks. And you kind of are. Because in the early days, it is really unclear what things will stick. And so you know, what I'm going to do is walk through a bunch of the things that we have tried and talk a little bit about why they have been good and not so good, and hopefully align them to needs that you may have in your organization. We definitely want to embrace skepticism. You know, one of our previous speakers said that, like, you know, bring in all the objections, because if we don't, people will sabotage things later on. We want to highlight best practices. And we need practitioner evangelists, which is to say, you know, no offense to the consultants out there, but all big companies ha have the sense of, like, this is us, and we know us, and there are people out there who don't know everything about us. So all, all that we can talk about this is what we do, and these are best practices. It's taken with anywhere from a little grain of salt to an entire barrel full of salt if you're not actually doing it. So having some skin in the game is really huge. So what will work in your organization? And this is worth you know, taking a moment to kind of think and actually write down, if you're taking notes, which of, you know, where do you fall along these questions? Because the things that will work in your organization are largely dependent on these. And we can distribute slides afterwards also. Uh, so one of the things is, is, where is your budget situation? For most of my career, I have dealt with budgets that are tiny to non-existent. And there's actually something very freeing about that, because when, when you haven't invested anything, the stakes are really low. So any success you get is great. But what you choose to roll out is going to depend a lot on that. And so in a lot of companies, even companies that are very flush with cash, they might like this, but your budget to actually do anything might be really small. It might be non-existent. It might also be big, which carries its own concerns. Do you have top-down executive support? And you can do a lot without it. If you have it, you get some goods and bads out of that. You get a lot of hierarchical sense of that cultural expectations. You also get execs kind of you know, swooping in and trying to tell you how things are done, which we've all seen before. Is there a deadline? Has someone said, we're going to achieve this by the end of the year or by 2018? Or is it sort of a, hey, we know we need to get there, and, and we'll get there hopefully sooner, but no one's ever put that kind of time pressure in place? How skeptical are the people in your organization? So a lot of companies, especially those who invested heavily in kind of the past silver bullets, like if you were a Six Sigma company, Everyone is probably inwardly groaning about lean startups. They're like, yeah, we did a lot of work for another thing when it was called something else. And, and none of us are any smarter than we were then. In some organizations, you have people who are more optimistic. In some people, it's very variable. And then kind of what kinds of expertise do people trust? Again, so I, you know, I, I said that about consultants. But that's not actually universally true. There are a lot of companies where you know, consultants come in and they tell, they tell everyone something. And all the internal employees are like, I could have told you that. But it's that upper management trusted someone that they're paying more money, apparently, to come in and say the same thing. So are people more trustworthy of internal versus external employees? Are they more, uh, is there a lot more trust seated in certain job titles? You know, engineers over marketers, over product people, over designers. Whoever is the closest to making a decision is often the person who has kind of the most moral authority. And so those tend to be the people where you want to center decisions. 
So my title is design researcher. Design researchers in a lot of organizations don't particularly have that decision-making power, uh, which is why in my new role I report into a product team, because they do have that. So just having this sense of where you are and where your org fits in these questions is kind of a good start. And you can think those in mind as I go through some of the things that we did. So talk about what we tried, the pros and cons, and kind of the investment that was required for any of these. So first of all, you know, this is like a, a fancy way of saying MVP, which is like if you want to get started, the first thing that you do, you're going to do is not to like go out and build you know, an MVP. You're not going to go out and say, okay, starting tomorrow, we're going to talk to 100 customers, and we're all going to come back, meet back in a week. You're probably not actually very good at that, and it's a really big jump. So in this situation, you know, what happened within Microsoft, which predates me, I can take no credit for it, is that literally there were teams sent to participate in an external startup accelerator program. They went through like a Techstars program in Seattle, spent two months building a startup, talking to customers, not being having under the constraints of their normal jobs. And that was sort of the sense of, let's try this thing. It's a big investment to take a team out of their normal role and send them off into this, and we'll see what happens. And, and it was one of those things where if it had worked badly and had disappointing results, you know, probably wouldn't have been repeated. But that particular team was very enthusiastic. They kind of came back, like, this is amazing. Like, I learned so much. I had no idea what the outside world was like, pretty much. Um, and so there was a lot of energy to, like, let's do more of that. Now, of course, taking one team at a time and sending them through a two-month accelerator program I think someone calculated that it would take like 80 years to get through our entire division. So that was clearly not scalable. But as you know, an MVP doesn't have to be scalable. It's a thing that you do to learn whether or not you want to keep investing. So that was a really useful investment. It cost money. It cost time. But it didn't require proactively developing in-house expertise on how to talk to customers and form hypotheses because they went to an accelerator that was already doing this with startups. And they had peers that already knew this because they were startups. And so a lot of that infrastructure for learning was borrowed. You know, so they, we could just say, go over there, learn these things, and then we'll figure out what elements we want to uh, bring back in. The next thing you kind of want to do if you want to do that is, is is you start with a few people. You don't have to roll things out to everyone at once. So kind of the next move is, okay, we want more of this. How do we, how do we get more of this, but in a somewhat more scalable way? And so the training got shortened, and it was brought in-house. And we actually have someone in the audience who had done part of this training, uh, who'd been teaching some of this training. And teams started going through kind of variations of the two-month training that were giving them skills and, but still keeping them within kind of their day jobs. And so that was having more people in a different environment, like we, we, we kept the plant alive, now can we put it in our soil and will they die off? And, and they survived and the teams are there. And for the most part, everyone I've talked to who's been through this has been very appreciative of that training and kind of having that, that sense of skill set. So what's the investment here? Well, some full-time employees kind of got peeled off to do this. There was a travel budget. They had to develop training. There were some consultants who came in and helped develop the training. So at this point, we're getting to more of a, more of a financial investment, certainly a time investment, 
and teams still having to kind of decide who could afford to take this training versus getting stuff out the door. So all these things kind of went well. Again, we had, uh, we had budget. We had not particular deadlines around these teams. We just wanted to continue making this investment. So what do we do next? Then we kind of get into the, uh, to the cultural change aspect. So as this was going on, we already had the necessary but, but not sufficient thing of, of top-down change. So you know, at this was happening after we had recently got a new CEO. Satya Nadella had taken over at Microsoft. He was getting on stage, holding up iPhones, talking about innovation, you know, telling everyone to read growth mindset. So we kind of had this a little bit of cultural ethos coming through the company. But of course, what CEOs say and what happens down at our level is dramatically different because you know, while they technically could, the odds of, of Satya ever coming and firing me or promoting me are incredibly low. And so to some degree, it doesn't really matter what he says. Um, in my division, the head of the division was also kind of taking up this charge of saying, hey, we need to do this. We need to more, be more customer focused. And so we were starting to get that hierarchical sense of this is important. This is something that we want to invest in. This is not that hard to get. What's hard to get is to do something productive with it. So I had written Lean Customer Development, and our head of the division, Scott Guthrie, had, had read it and liked it and was buying it for people. And, and I got to meet with him, and he said, well, what should we do? And I said, it's great that you are enforced, that you're, you're endorsing this, but we need some kind of action to show that you are endorsing it enough for people to do something about it. Because we typically get CEOs saying, you should all do this, and then there's not really any follow through there. And, and if there is, it tends to be stick follow through. Like, I'm not exactly going to define what you should do, but if you don't do it, you won't get promoted. And that's kind of the worst case scenario. So having this sort of sense of this is what we're going to do and it is worth spending time on is incredibly useful. And what happened there is that uh, he actually had his leadership team and their leadership team, so a couple of hundred uh, very highly paid, very calendar busy people, spent a half day doing a workshop with me. And he came to both workshops, and I saw the invite that was basically, we're going to do this workshop, everyone is in, who is in town is expected to attend. And it was an interesting thing to kind of see that it wasn't, it was no, there was no stick. It was just like, this is the thing we do. This is important. I expect you all to come and listen and ask questions. And I found that this was a really interesting thing to have a room full of all of these people who have been very successful in their careers doing things that bore no resemblance to anything we've talked about in the last two days. You know, they're executing uh, you know, like the enterprises execute, startups explore, and we were saying, you're going to start exploring. All these things that have gotten you to partner and, and VP, back up on those, we're going to do all these things that you don't know about. And what that also served to accomplish was to invite that skepticism at a level where people really felt free to criticize. So if you are rolling something out, if the big boss says, we're going to do this thing, and you, as some degree of middle manager, think it's kind of a terrible idea, you are not going to say that in a forum where your reports are there because you know as a leader you're going to have to weigh in on a certain amount of things. Um, and, and you, at the end of the day, will get metriced based on how well your team follows things. So having that team be in a room without their direct reports 
and without anyone who was kind of looking up to them, allowed everyone to make all of their glib remarks, and their this will never work, and they're, you know, you know, tell me why, you know, how much is this going to cost? How much time is this going to waste? And it was phenomenal because we had the time to kind of let everyone express that and talk through, well, you know, this is how long this might take, and yes, this is a new skill, and yes, you're probably going to ship less stuff, and and having our division lead in the room so that, as I said, you're going to ship less stuff, he was kind of like, that's okay, everyone. And having that kind of done in one big fell swoop was incredibly useful in terms of now when I talk to other people who are you know, GMs of product lines, they have had this thing kind of drilled into them early on. And so as their teams and their team's teams have done more training, there's this kind of seed at the middle manager level of, okay, we had this cultural expectation set. I got to ask questions. I got to see, you know, my skeptical coworker said something and they weren't shot down and they weren't told to like, you know, shut up and cheerlead. You know, let's let's see how this thing works. So this is something that is except for the time expectation, basically free. Uh, I, I was an internal employee. I came in, I did a, a workshop. It was not that hard to put together. I do these a lot, but honestly, I don't think I could have gone in without slides. I could have just gone in and said, everyone in the room, here's a five-minute explanation of customer development. Now let's have every single person tell me why they think this is never going to work. I think that would have been equally, if not more effective, honestly. Um, so just kind of saying things like that are okay. Because I think we have a sense of what training looks like. And it, it typically involves slides and workshop exercises and sticky notes. And sometimes it's just being willing to say things that no one was expecting you to say, like, yes, this will be slower. Yes, you will screw up. It will be embarrassing. Like, you will not have predictable schedules in the same way that you used to. We can mitigate some of these things. But also kind of giving people the room to say, well, you know, our, we never really made our schedules anyways. Because everyone who works in software knows that all your scope estimates have always been wrong and all of your, you know, ship dates have always been wrong, at least one of the two, if not both. Uh, so the predictability that we've had in the past is all kind of fake anyways. But we can't say that around uh, all of the rank and file employees because that riles them up. So that was an incredibly useful thing. I don't think senior leaders realize how that they should be doing this, uh, at least none of the ones that I've ever talked to. So this is something that would not have happened if I had not said, look, I think you need to get all your lieutenants in the room and, and tell them that you think this is important and not just in the, you know, kind of all-hands, newslettery sort of way, but stand up there, you know, sitting at a table with your laptop and, and tell everyone this is important and you need to think it's important too. So a lot of times that giving leaders that sense of like, this is what you can do to help us. You have to manage up. So to keep things going, what do you do? One of the things I found really interesting is that while people really enjoyed going through the training, there were all of these people who were sort of novices at a new set of skills. And if you think about it, that's not a great way to grow a population of experts because you kind of have people who are all bad at something because they're new at it, trying to teach each other. And so it's really easy in that situation to slip back into old habits. So if you look at how people learn kind of out in the real world, you think about the last time you tried to pick up a new skill, you probably thought about your friends and went through your mental Rolodex and said, well, who's really good at snowboarding or finding new restaurants or learning a language? And you went to that person and you said, what should I do? 
And whatever they told you was probably pretty good advice. Certainly it was better advice than your friend who is also brand new at something. So trying to build up local experts is something that requires a fair amount of, of effort in terms of the teaching and the identifying, but is free. And you will always find people who want to be kind of that expert. There are always people who enjoy being gurus. So the first start of this is literally that I started sending out some emails saying, hey, anyone who wants to come work from San Francisco for a week, you can sit next to my team and uh, we'll help you write your customer development scripts. We'll help you find people. We'll listen in on the calls. Afterwards, we'll tell you all the times you asked leading questions or that you asked a question that, that didn't work very well so that you get that real-time feedback. And so it wasn't, this is how you do this skill. It was, you practice this skill, and we as sort of a benevolent audience will watch you and then tell you how to get better at it. And you know, we had somewhere between 15 and 18 people, which is not a whole lot, but came through in a bunch of cycles uh, from Redmond down to San Francisco where my office is, and they sat at the t big table where my team would sit, and they would come in with goals. We would do a prep call beforehand and say, what do you want to do this week? And some would say, I need to talk to 20 customers. And some would say, we have an idea about a problem, but we need more details on it. Uh, and, and some people were like, well, I have a survey. And I would make a face at them over the phone. Um, and we'd say, well, we'll start with that. Right, start with the survey. We'll, we'll move on. But over the course of the week, they got to practice. They got some, uh, some air cover you know, the islands of freedom that, that people have talked about, they kind of got this sense of like, my boss is not here. My day job is not really here. Some of them had to dial into meetings, but for the most part, they had a week where all the stuff they normally have to worry about was sort of put on hold. And so that allowed people to practice skills that they weren't particularly good at, and they got a lot of that real-time feedback. They also got to listen in as my team, who had been doing this for a long time, did interviews. And a lot of them kind of came away with like, oh, I didn't realize, like, didn't realize things could work that way. You know, when we see how you guys had a conversation and every conversation was different. Like, yes, because every, every person is different. And I find that uh, teams where usability testing has been part of an organization before tend to have the sense that, like, every customer conversation has to be exactly the same. No. I mean, if you were doing a, a task-based usability test, you do want to have a basically the same script. If you're asking people about what they do today and what's important to them, there's, there's no way you can have the same conversation and still respect what's actually important to that person. And so seeing that play out over the course of a week was really interesting to people. When those teams came back, they were now more of, more of experts. So you'd have one or two PMs from one team who went back to their day jobs, and now when someone had a question, they had someone who was a little bit more of an expert, but who was also really easy to get in touch with that they could ask questions of. So kind of having some people who are a little bit ahead of the curve has been really useful. Uh, and as some of them have shifted divisions, they've brought that knowledge with them into new teams. Um, just, like just like every customer has different needs, every team has different needs also because people are ultimately going to be motivated by what projects they're working on and what their managers find important. So when people are rolling out sort of 
you know, new trainings and new ways of doing things, one of the most frequent mistakes is not taking adequate consideration of what is this person's team going to be like? What environment are we planting these seeds into? Is this a place, you know, is this a desert? Is this a jungle? Is this an aeroponic bay? Because you're going to have to have different, you know, ways of thinking about things. So we have teams who are working in sort of net new developer spaces. So people who are new to software development, they have a certain set of needs. We have people who have, you know, would describe themselves as being a Microsoft shop who use every bit of our technology and they have been for 20 years and they have learned every workaround. And so all the terrible, terrible things that all our products still do, they're used to it and they know how it works and it doesn't bother them anymore. And so depending on which team is trying to listen to customers and try and be thoughtful about forming hypotheses and disproving them, there are different things that they have to disprove. And so one of the things that I started before being in this division and continue to do is to actually just go talk to small teams of people, again, without prepared slides. You know, sometimes I'll have a couple, but basically, what are you guys trying to do? How well is it working? How is it not working? When you come back with results, how is your manager responding? What kinds of questions are they asking? And these are different from every, for every team. And people tend to say like, well, our team's kind of unique because, and, and usually the reason they give is kind of bogus. Like you're all building software, it's fine. But how their managers respond is very different and how their customers respond is very different. And so this sense of after people have been trained, what do you do with them next? Is, has been a really interesting journey of, you know, the plan that I have with my current manager is, you know, well, I'm just going to go talk to people about what they're doing today, which sounds like, that doesn't sound like there's much there there. But I, I sent in my first report on this last week, and it's like, this is fascinating. Uh, because every team has kind of these different concerns and worries. And so when you go to each team and you have them, you know, embrace all their skepticism and give them some answers and give them some things to think about or to try, and then you leave, you haven't solved their problems. In fact, a lot of times I leave these meetings and I have to remind myself that they're not all, like things are not grim because I'll go in and I will hear like 20 objections as to why like everything is very hard and we're doing this, we're running into these problems. I'm like, oh, we're never gonna get there. Uh, but I will check back in with teams a week or two later and they're like, we're so much happier now. And I didn't actually do anything but listen to them. So it's kind of a, you know, lean therapy has been a big, uh, big thing of mine. And again, that's something that is free. The more skepticism there is in your organization, the more useful this is, and the smaller the team size you will want to talk to. And in fact, when you have teams that are highly skeptical and also very close-knit, it is useful to break up those teams sometimes and have um, literally the same meeting over and over with a very small group of people. So I've done this in, in a number of, of for different reasons, for customer development as well as kind of internal strife. When you have a team that is very negative, they, that energy kind of feeds in on each other. And so I have, um, and I can send out the URL, I have a blog post actually called the six person meeting in which I've determined this is kind of the optimal size. If you have a team of say 18 people and they're all very angry and you try and have a meeting with 18 people, they will all gang up on you because there's only one of you and there's 18 of them and they're all self-reinforcing. And so the, it will be a waste. You could have a one-hour meeting or a three-hour meeting. Those 18 people are still going to walk out of the room distrusting you. When you break them up into a small group and you separate the loudest people so that maybe each group of six only has one loud person in it, 
you can have the same exact meeting three times in a row. And it feels like it will be a huge waste of time because no one actually likes meetings and you just had to do this three times. But the odds that your, your comments will stick and change are much, much higher. And so when I've done this with as kind of like a very small team, you go, you have the meeting, you talk to them, and then afterwards you kind of send out a summary of, look, I've talked to all of you now, and these are the concerns that you all had, and these are the things that you all think are working well, and here's some recommendations, and then suddenly everyone is happier again. So the sense of don't be afraid of doing non-scalable things in this sense of overcoming skepticism. And you think about 8,000 people, if I do six-person meetings, like it's gonna take me 80 years to get to everyone. But each subsequent one does become easier because you have now created people who are farther along their journey. So in the very beginning, I remember arguing with people about, like I literally spent two years never using the phrase minimum viable product at Microsoft because in the beginning, there's, you could get nowhere with that. As soon as you said it, people were like, oh, so we're gonna stop caring about quality. So we're gonna, we're gonna ship things that don't work. And you could not get people out of that mindset. It was an utter waste of time. As soon as you said minimum viable product, everything else you had in mind, no matter how much it made sense, flew out the window, no one was listening, eyes glazed over. And so we talked about hypothesis-driven development and being scientific and being experimental, and those things went much better. It was the same concept, but we had to use different language. We are now in a place where you can say a minimum viable product, and for the most part, people are like, yeah, I get it. I, I know what you mean by that. I'm not having that reaction anymore. And so there's a lot of work that I used to have to do that I don't anymore. People are like, experiments, we got it. Those are good. Not everything has to you know, be translated into 144 languages before we try one thing. We're over that hump. It did take two, three years. And that's my division. Uh, not all the divisions are over that because sometimes I venture outside and I still run into that. So, where are we now? We have made progress. I no, longer, I no longer have to skip out on minimum viable product. But we are still, frankly, at the bottom of a big hill. Like, you know, if you've seen that kind of local maxima diagram, it's like we're at the top of one hill and things are gonna get worse before they get better again. Because people now largely have a skill set. They have learned about hypotheses and experiments. They have learned a framework for talking to customers. Many of them still do it badly. Many of them are still applying it in places where it doesn't make sense. Someone was telling me about a team that was doing interviews because there was uh, basically, not, a, not malware, but, but something that could be kind of perceived as a security flaw in the product. And they were doing interviews to s basically to see if they, could, they should fix it. I was like, no, no, we should just fix it. Like, th there's gonna be fallout. Like, there were, there was, the, the argument was, if we make this change, some people might have negative repercussions. I was like, but it's essentially a bug. Like, we don't do customer development for bugs. You can measure it. You are welcome to put in, you know, an A-B test or to put in, you know, some data logging so you can see the impact, but you just have to fix things. And, and there are some things where, like, that's just a judgment call. You should just make it. Measure it so you see what happened, but you do not ask customers about every single thing. So we are vastly over-applying the tools, which makes people angry because then they spend time talking to customers and they're like, well, that's what I was gonna do anyways. Like, well, yeah, that next time maybe not, let's not do that. So what do we do now? And it's funny because I was looking through these slides before and I realized that they are already out of date because in the last two weeks, some of these things have changed. So I'll talk about that too. One of them is 
to foster community. So we're at the point now where we cannot continue moving forward on the strength of a handful of experts like me and the group of people who are doing the official training for customer development and experimentation. That's not enough to carry forward everyone. But there are people who are doing a good job running experiments, who are particularly good at interviewing customers, who are particularly good at taking a hypothesis and, and saying that's not a hypothesis, that's a feature that you tried to back into a hypothesis. We need those people to go meet with their peers. And so one of the things we're trying out is basically peer mentoring. You know, it is right now purely voluntary. We're saying, hey, if you are, have been doing anything even remotely related to experimenting or customer development, shoot us your name and we will match you up with someone else in another team in another part of the division. You guys go have coffee, talk. We're not giving you a script. Just go talk about stuff and then report back on what you learned. And so that's going to be one tiny step. Obviously, that can be scaled out infinitely. If it's great, and the first few people are, are reporting back just about now. So if it's great, we'll probably buy a whole lot of coffee gift cards and say, look, we'll even buy the coffee. You know, it's, it's pretty cheap. Every, all of you go out, find a friend, you know, talk with each other, tell, share what you learned, share what things neither one of you know yet, because maybe that is something where then I or, or someone else says, okay, now you get an official answer. So making those little things like that, which are largely relationship-based, and feel like they have no relationship to shipping product. But they are incredibly important because people are social animals, and we look around for kind of cues on what the people around us are doing, especially the people who we perceive as being particularly uh, you know, smart or, or well-respected. And it's like, we want to know what they're doing. And if we don't see evidence that people in other teams are doing this, then you start feeling like a sucker. Like, why am, I, why am I doing this if no one else is doing it? Or, or maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm doing this the hard way and I just didn't know it. So even things that are, are sort of disheartening, like some of the people, especially people who are working with net new customer bases, it's hard for them to find customers to talk to. Because if you're a startup and you're kind of quick and nimble and you're working on an innovative product, it's actually not that hard. And I've worked in a bunch of startups too. It's not that hard to find people who talk to you. But when you're Microsoft and you're trying to talk to a customer base who historically has not liked Microsoft, they kind of don't want to answer your emails. You know, like, oh, this giant faceless corporation, what are they going to do now that's evil? So these people can have a really rough time of it. And somehow talking to another person who's also having a rough time of it, instead of making them feel worse, kind of makes them feel better. So recognizing that social cue and really putting a lot of motion behind that has been probably you know, as important as some of the I'm going to train you on how to not ask leading questions type of work we've done. Uh, this is, uh, so the newsletter, sharing the love. The newsletter is the thing that has already been iterated upon. So one of my hypotheses was that people were having some challenges because they weren't seeing enough of the bright spots. Like, we, we're, we're going through growing pains, we're learning a new skill, not everyone's got it yet. I said, it feels to me like there are a lot of people saying, who is doing it good? Like, we don't actually know who is, is, is successful. So we should, we should have a newsletter where we find the teams or individuals who have done something really well. They, they had a, a fast, interesting failure. They learned something that really surprised everyone. You know, everyone on their team believed this was going to be true, but it wasn't. And we should find them all, and that'll be part of my job, and I'll have a newsletter so that we can, we can sh share those with everyone. So I started with that, and I started 
tracking down some people who looked like they'd be an interesting story. They had found something in the product that didn't work very well. They were looking for ways to test it. And uh, the more I talked to them, the more I realized that I was falling into the same trap as everyone else, which is I had leapt into a solution. Because we love solutions. They feel like I will do a thing. And not only that, not only had I leapt into the solution, clearly newsletter, that's the answer, but because I had told my boss that I was going to do a newsletter, I spent about three days persisting in thinking, well, I'll just write one anyways because I said I would do it, even though I don't think it's going to be very productive. And, and, and thankfully, you know, sitting there with my blank Word doc in front of me and trying to be like, well, how do I start this thing? You know, after like the third time I opened that document, I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is stupid. I already know that this is not going to work. And it's supposed to be my job to tell people not to do things that they, they know are not going to work. And yet, I still, that sense of, but I said I would, and I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing, I don't want to let people down, was very strong. And so then I stopped. And then I was like, hey, remember how I said I was going to do that newsletter? I actually think that's, that's a solution, and I didn't really understand the problem. So I'm going to go talk to a bunch of people to make sure I understand the problem. And, and thankfully, my boss was like, okay, yes, you should do that, because we're supposed to be modeling that behavior, aren't we? Uh, uh, but we, it's this constant reminder we have to have of, of stepping back from having all the answers and being prescriptive. And so what I actually did last week is I did 21 internal interviews of people who have been talking to customers in my division. And it was a really fascinating breadth of people feeling guilty because they weren't doing enough, people not really sure if they were doing it right, people saying, you know, what if we exhaust the pool of customers? It was just like, look, we're Microsoft. We're, we're never going to exhaust the pool of customers. I mean, don't, don't feel bad. Like, there may be 8,000 of you, but there are, there's like mo over a billion customers, so we'll be fine. Um, you know, during your lifetime, you're good. They keep, keep, we, keep, we keep making more children, too. So, you know, by the time we run low, my kids will be customers, and it'll, be, it'll work out fine. But, again, that was a, kind of an interesting thing because every single person came in, and they had problems with this approach. They had problems with, you know, customer development in general. They had complaints. We don't really know what we're doing. This takes too long. My manager's not setting aside time for it. I feel like I do this, and then management just swoops in and tells me what to do anyways. It's like every conversation started out bad. And, and, and I was kind of like, all right, I'm glad I'm doing these over the phone, because I was cringing into the phone for every single one. And as people talked, they started getting happier. And at the end, everyone was like, you know what? I'm really happy that someone's doing this. And the first time I was like, uh, could you tell me more? Doing, doing what? And they said, you know, usually when we try something new, we don't actually reflect on whether it's working or how we could do it better. And someone said, you know, we do postmortems on software releases all the time, but we don't do them on process changes. And so just have that notion of having a human come and say, hey, I know you're doing this thing, and it, I know it's not going perfectly. Let's talk about how it's not going perfectly and look for ways to solve it, made everyone feel better about where they were today. So I would say that every single conversation started off negative and ended mostly positive, which was very heartening. And while it took a lot of time to talk to 21 people, it was basically all I did last week, it did kind of feel like, oh, this is actually making a difference. And I don't need to talk to the other 7,980 people, because if I do you know, 20 more here and 20 more there, it's going to kind of feed out into their team. And so, you know, several people also hung up the phone. They said, I'm going to go talk to my team about this because 
you know, they're going to be really excited to know that someone's making sure that we're not wasting our time. So these are the things, the very human things, that when we think about process change and, and extolling knowledge and metricing, that it's, we don't tend to do. And I'm a big fan of metrics, but something like this is, it's hard to baseline. And I did actually have a baseline, which is how many people think that uh, customer development is actually having an impact on what they do. Uh, but I asked it as, tell me how. Like, tell me how you think customer development has made a real change in what your team is doing. And it was, it was about one-third definitely and one-third like maybe, sort of, and, and one-third no, which is not a great number, but it's, it's an okay place to start. Uh, so that, if anything, might be a metric. But I would not recommend that you say, okay, we're going to make sure that we talk to 20 people once a quarter, because like all metrics, that can be gamed. But there is a sense of when you're doing a new thing, we have to remember that, that we're humans and we're lazy and, frankly, we all kind of need that, that help to go on. <coughs> so the other one is, uh, is, is the ninja. And this is kind of like the islands of freedom, the sense of someone who is not bound by the normal rules. And uh, that's me. I, I am the ninja. So I came into this division basically saying, I know there's a lot of stuff that we're not doing well yet. You should just hire me to work on something. And I'm pretty sure it was more eloquent than that because they hired me. But essentially, um, I am an employee. I have skin in the game. I can talk about things that we have done, but people also know that ultimately I'm going to be judged by the same manager who's judging them and their managers. And something about that is very reassuring to people. They know I'm not going to say a bunch of things and then fly off into the night and they're all left holding the bag. But I don't have what I would used to uh, refer to as a day job right now. I used to run a research team. Now I am a solo ninja. And it means that I have very few meetings that I don't put on my own calendar. It means that I don't have a spec I need to get done or mock-ups I need to deliver. That will probably change. I feel like I will want to go back to product work, but right now, it means that I have been able to spend my time looking for internal problems so that we can figure out a solution versus having a lot of people who have already got their day 95% full and they're trying to spend that 5% where they're already kind of exhausted looking for something to make life better, which means they tend to jump to solutions. So. I know that not everyone has a particularly flexible headcount, but I have to say, if you're in an org where you, know, you can finagle a role for someone to do this for some period of time, it's already been phenomenally interesting. Uh, so that's kind of what we're, we're trying right now. We have not solved this. We are not even close. But we have tried all of these things, and we have gotten a lot better. So I am happy to ask questions. So like, I don't know where we're going with this. We're learning to um, embrace uncertainty. People are starting to get more comfortable with not knowing what they're going to be doing or the approach they're going to be taking in a couple months, but we are still at the bottom of that hill. And I would be happy to take questions about things that you're trying to do or any more detail on any of the things that you've seen. Um, you started talking at the beginning a little bit about companies that have already gone through the Lean Six Sigma transformations, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know if that was your situation, but how would you convince senior management that this is different enough to mm -hmm. be worth investing in when they've already invested so much in Lean Six Sigma? 
or other similar sure. programs. So what would you do to managers who've been burned or are just frustrated by past things have invested in? Exactly. So um, where I have seen this is actually not as much with process change in Microsoft, but the team I used to work on, Yammer, is an enterprise social collaboration tool. And a lot of people who started out using it were like, yeah, we've had wikis, we've had this. We've, like, everyone had had a thing that they had invested a lot of time in in the past. In some cases, you know, having managers who said, everyone's gonna learn Markdown and everything's gonna go into the wiki. So any enterprise company we went into had a lot of people who were approaching it with that level of skepticism. And what we would basically do is kind of take a customer development slash therapy approach and say, well, tell us about how that last project went. What were you hoping to get out of it? How did it fall short of your needs? If you had it to do again, what would you do differently? And get that map and then look for things to kind of align with that. So if someone said, you know, we spent all this time in Six Sigma training and then no one could effectively use it, then we would talk about this, okay, so with this approach, we're gonna focus more on people practicing because it sounds like last time you invested a lot of time in learning but you never actually got the benefits. And you know, this is how, you know, these are some of the ways that people could practice these skills on maybe less critical things. And if, you're, if this is new to you, you maybe don't want to say, okay, we're betting the company on this new product launch and so everyone go talk to customers. Maybe we start with some internal interviews to kind of break, build up that skill. But essentially, we, it's, it's customer development by analogy and it's, it's actually, uh, it works for people who've been burned in the past and also for situations where someone has never had that product or service experience before is we ask things like, well, in the last situation that was similar, how did you deal with this? So partially therapy and then whatever they say, find a reason to kind of align with that. Hey Cindy, how's it going? Uh, over here. Um, <laughs> okay. So you mentioned taking teams out of their, their norm, bringing them into your uh, San Francisco office. What if you don't have a full week? Like, What if you only have Monday, Wednesday, and Friday an, an hour? Do you have any suggestions for consol like consolidated and concentrated type of approaches? So what do you do when you only have limited hours? That's really tough. Um, one approach that we have done is to not, and this has been internal mostly to my team at Yammer, is to not ask permission, but to just do something like, we are doing a half day offsite and we're just all disappearing and I'm the manager, so I'll, I'll deal with the fallout. And then coming back and saying, and this is what we learned and why it was useful and why we think this kind of chunk of time is a good investment. So if you can do a kind of rogue situation where you steal a half day, then that's useful, but when you do that, you do have to have a very clear explanation of this is what we wanted to achieve, this is what we actually achieved, this is why we think more people should do it. If you just kind of go off and you don't have that very cogent uh, response, you might not get, you know, you probably won't get fired, but you also won't get someone to say, we should do this again. Um, a week is a long period of time. I think we wouldn't actually need that, but I do think having enough of a chunk of time so that you can plan an activity, do the activity, and retrospect on the activity is really useful. And I think that's really hard across days. You could do planning and activity. So if you wanted to say like, let's generate hypotheses, let's think about what we'd like to ask customers, let's identify customers that we'd like to talk to, that could fit into one chunk of time. But then actually 
talking to customers or building an MVP or, or whatever you did, I feel like that plus the retro, the closer you can get those together, the better. So do your best. But, but those, are, those are the three chunks I would think of it as. And if you have to have them as different, discrete chunks of time, I would say planning, doing, reflecting, and don't try and intermix them. So I was wondering, do you um, mainly focus on teams, or if you had one individual who was really interested in learning more and wanting to practice, but the team wasn't bought in, kind of, do you have any training or focus for that, or really most of what you do is, is team-based and you found that that's more productive? Uh, so I think team-based, so what do you do when there's one person who wants to learn and the rest of the team is not there yet? I think the team unit is by far the most effective way, but you don't always have that, and so in that case, I would probably look and see, is there, can we find any, maybe not mentors, but buddies for this person in another team, just so that they have someone to talk to about something. The other thing is, if their team is willing to at least come and hear me out, sometimes I would say, look, I can do a brown bag. We can do like, everyone get lunch, people can just rain objections on me for a half an hour and I'll talk to them, and it may work or it may not. Um, I, I am fairly used to people just telling me all the reasons why I'm wrong and without, without crying, so I, I do this a lot. But I think that's been useful, and I have seen definitely teams where there was one proponent and a bunch of skeptics, and I did this, and I left feeling like nothing had changed, but then they, I would kind of check in with that person six months later, and they'd say, I think the team is coming around. Like, they are less objectioned, they have less objection to this now, or now they have seen other teams who are doing it. And, and that was a, always a big part, too, is when, when folks were not bought in, the most I could do to point to other teams who were also doing this was very useful. And as a person who is sort of perceived to be neutral, like I work for the company, but I'm not on your team, so to some degree, it's no skin off my nose if you guys decide not to do this. That, I think, was really useful, because the proponent on the team would always kind of be like, everyone, we should do it! A and for them, any no answer was just going to be disappointing. And for me, I was like, look, you know, I think you should do this, but I, I also will go work to my part of the company and I may never see you again, so I will just listen to your objections and, and try and answer them. I do also know people who change teams based on that. You know, within a big company, some folks were like, look, the rest of my team just wasn't with it, so I started looking around to find teams that were, and now I'm really happy in my new place. So my question is, you know, it's okay, lean startup methodology, these principles, um, should that be focused just on few areas where it is relevant, like maybe customer development teams or uh, new product development, that kind of thing, or it should be more broad scale uh, implement for everybody? Because there is a debate, you know, I've heard presentations that say it should be for everybody in the company. But not everybody in the company need to know certain things. You know, that is not true. <laughs> okay, I, I, you know. Right. I, but uh, the, so I'll the, let the you reason I'm asking, but but the question really is, um, how do you, when do you scale? 
do you need to scale mm -hmm. across the company? That's the question. Okay, so you know, who needs to do this? Do you need to scale? So first of all, yes, I would say pretty much, pretty much everyone needs to know this, but not everyone needs to know and invest at the same level. And I do think that is a mistake I see people doing is they're like, everyone's gonna do interviews. I know some very smart people who should not be doing interviews on their own ever because they will never put a customer at ease. It will never be anything but awkward. Those people make very fine note takers and we employ a lot of note taking. We do interviews in at least pairs and everyone who does not want to be customer facing or hasn't learned that they want to be that yet, we will say, why don't you take notes? And th this is uh, dating to when I was at Yammer, although I'm pushing teams to do this as well in my new division. Uh, when we kicked off projects there, we would, uh, first we bribed. So in the beginning, we would bring in cupcakes, or if it was a Friday, we'd bring in, you know, like beers or a bottle of whiskey. So like, note takers, come take notes, and, you know, and we'll do something for you. Once we'd done a few of those successfully, and we basically had, you know, some kind of more interested in customers, engineers saying, yes, this was a good experience, then I went to engineering managers and said, it's a limited time commitment. I will make it as convenient as possible, but you cannot have engineers who are not willing to understand customer needs because they are building something that people are going to use, and if they don't understand how people use it, how could they possibly do a good job? And that, I got a lot of support from my, my manager on that as well, but just saying it kind of matter-of-factly, like, look, it's, it's a half an hour. If you can't invest a half an hour in understanding how people use our product, then you shouldn't work here. And I didn't say that to the engineers directly, but that is how I feel. If you are not willing to invest, like, some small, finite, you don't have to learn a giant new skill. I mean, literally, we'd say, we will give you a template, and you just type notes. You should be able to do that. We will do it right before lunch or right after lunch, so we're not pulling you out of a productive coding session, but you have to do this. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of people who will never be gung-ho, and that's fine. Note taker, or at the very least, come to share out sessions, but then, then it would be useful to have like a couple of people on that team who are actually participating. Um, as for which kind of orgs, so I think a customer development org as a silo is kind of always a bad idea unless they happen to also be very influential into what product decisions are getting made. And in my old org, I did have a research team and we did the bulk of the customer development, but my boss was the head of product and I was involved in all of the product prioritization meetings and so every area that we chose to invest in had me kicking people under the table whenever I didn't agree with decisions. So we were very tied into that process. In my current org, we have a lot of product managers or program managers, because it's Microsoft, doing interviews, which to me makes sense because they are the ones making decisions about what's gonna happen in the product. And if we just had researchers doing research, then it would get kind of ignored at people's like, well, I don't really wanna listen to that. Because that is what happens. Like as humans, we really like our own ideas and we don't really like ideas that come from other people, and so we try and shunt them off. New product is definitely easier. I tend to uh, coach people on kind of a scaled down version for existing products. So you have an existing product, you're not going out to test a business model. You're not going out to test, you know, do people need an IDE? Like yes, they're, they're engineers, they need this. What you're testing are things like, of how you're working today, what frustrations do you have? What are the things that it didn't occur to you to file a bug, but it's really annoying you such that if a competitor product comes out, you would like to try it. So it's more observation-based and it's, it's more incremental and you can do a lot less of it. So when I th say things like 20 interviews in the book, 
If you're working on you know, the bazillionth version of Visual Studio, you do not need to be doing 20 interviews for the next version of that product unless you're substantially going to redesign it. I think that's, I think that's all the parts. Yeah. Is there time for one more question? Hello. I want to build on the past two questions on that one person who wants to do it and the focus on a team to get a team to do it. Mm -hmm. So in a deliverable-based situation when there's a deadline and there's a team, go team, do this, but there's only one person who wants to do it. To meet that deadline, that one person will just take the full responsibility, make that deadline. So from a deliverable point of view, it seems like it worked. But from a team point of view, no one, the, other, the others didn't really learn because just that, that one person that just shot up and did everything. Mm -hmm. So in that type of situation, like, what are your thoughts on you know, how do we get this team? Not, it's not like just have this one superstar that mm -hmm. pulled up the whole team, but we want the whole team to move up. All right, so when we have the one person, and somehow, even though there's a deadline, this one person goes out and learns something, and everyone else is like, okay, Cindy, that was great that you learned that. You know, now I can just coast along. What do you do with that? So the, the cynical answer is if the manager doesn't care, it's really hard to get the whole team to go along. If the manager is fine with like Cindy listening to customers and everyone else coasting and has no inclination to change it, it's tough. I have, however, been the one person who does this in a couple of, of past situations. And what I tend to do is try and, uh, try and employ a certain amount of FOMO in the team, uh, you know, fear of missing out, so we talk about where we started, what we learned, and how, why being smarter about this is better, or what could have gone awry. So let's say there's a problem, and I'm like, you know, I feel like the way we, you know, the way we think people use web-based apps is wrong, and, and I think that you know, people close their browser tab all the time instead of leaving a browser tab open, which was a real question. And everyone's like, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so I went off and did some research and did some observation. And I kind of presented it back as, Remember when we all thought this thing? And everyone's kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Cindy. Uh, I said, it turns out that all of you and me were wrong, and this is what we learned. And now that we know this, we could prevent ourselves from making this particular error. So it's kind of, here is the problem, here is evidence for the problem, and here is what will happen if we don't fix the problem. Or here is what we, the bad thing that didn't happen because we fixed the problem. And then you kind of plant the seeds of, you know, think of other things we could find, like as, uh, think of past mistakes we've made that we could have avoided. It's also really helpful if you can find another team who is making the same kind of mistake because uh, criticizing your own team doesn't work very well, but everyone kind of likes feeling morally superior to some other team. So uh, again, a somewhat cynical answer, but if you can say like, hey, look at that team over there. You know, they made all these assumptions and they shipped Windows 8 and look how that turned out. Uh, and then I was like, wait, we don't want to be like that. We, we are better than that. And I find that that kind of sense of, of, of wanting to be morally superior is actually works really well. So, you know, employ with caution, but, but it works. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. Let's give a big hand for her. Thank you. Appreciate it.